Well, David, it seems, just can't get it right. This is the second passage in a row that we have seen David attempt to bring the Ark of the Lord into the city of Jerusalem. In his initial attempt, we saw it was God who stood opposed to David as he brought this Ark in because David had failed to bring it in according to God's instructions. He disregarded God's holiness, and God penalized him. Or rather, he penalized Uzzah. But in the message here was that Uzzah wrongly touched the ark because the whole approach to God had been faulty. David needed to learn, and as we saw, he did learn the lesson that God's holiness It was meant to bless, but it must be on God's terms, not our terms. Well, here, now, David tries to bring the ark in again. This time, it's his wife, Michael, who stands opposed to him. She's critical of the way that he's celebrating. Uh, She's critical of the, the fact that he brings the ark in in a manner that she disapproves of. In her view... David's worship is extravagant. He is wasteful. Who he, the fact that he's dancing and who he is dancing with are scandalous and shameful. His, his dress itself is something that she is ashamed of. Essentially, she charges David with being careless, inappropriate, and irresponsible. Now, these critiques hit home. They're ones I don't want to be accused of. Whereas Uzzah's sin and David's sin by extension are are criticisms that sometimes I can rationalize and and maybe think that, well, God is is being extreme here. He's he's not really being uh, compassionate or understanding. When I hear the criticisms leveled by Micah, I take them to heart. Those are ones I never want to be accused of. We're mortified when someone accuses us of being irresponsible or lazy. We're struck to the core when people attack our reputation. We often feel the need to be defensive. Michael's criticism is one we're more likely to guard ourselves against. So why is it that David takes the first criticism, the criticism from God, much more seriously? And the criticism from Michael, his wife, he disregards. Well, it's not simply because one comes from God and one comes from his wife. These are not equal in their criticisms. And David discerns the difference. Michael's criticism comes from the perspective of a life lived before man, from a desire to to please man, and is motivated by the fear of others. David, however, is committed to living a life before God, quorum Deo, in the presence of God. He lives his entire life where God's opinion of him matters exclusively. What we have here in David's actions is a guide. Not just a 
uh, a guide for us to be freed from the fear of man, but also an illustration of a heart set free by this very compassionate gospel. It's the, what the Christian life should look like as we encounter a loving and gracious God. So let's turn to this passage now, but before we do so, let's pray God's blessing on it. Father, we do come to your word I'm thankful that you are a God who communicates to us and that your message to your people is one of hope and goodness. Um, open our ears and our hearts to this word this morning so that you might be glorified and that we might be uh, drawn closer and closer to Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, uh, reading this passage can be a bit awkward because it feels like you are being plunked down in the middle of a a fight between husband and wife. You almost feel like a fly on the wall between a, a big marital conflict between David and Michael. And we might ask, well, how do we know whose side to take on this? I mean, is it just simply he said, she said? And it's only a matter of, of choosing sides arbitrarily. Well, when reading scripture, we have to remember that uh, not only did uh, a an author create this, but that God stands as the ultimate author, and that he has given the narrator, he has inspired the narrator to, to not only give us the content of what's going on here, but also to, to shape our perspective on it. We're supposed to, to read the clues to understand what, how to view the text. And the narrator gives us a guide to demonstrate this. Certain details are meant to inform our perspective. The first thing we could see is that when Michael is introduced in verse 16, she's not introduced as David's wife. She's not introduced as the queen. She's introduced as the daughter of Saul. And anybody who's been reading through the book of Samuel, First and Second Samuel, knows what that stands for. Saul was Israel's first king, and he spent most of his reign antagonizing David. Well, not only that, Saul was known for his kingly appearance and his faithless actions. So much so that he was all image and no substance. He epitomized this ongoing theme of walking by sight and not by faith. Saul was much like his daughter. Michael will be obsessed with appearance and the opinions of others. We're also given a glimpse into her character as this big party comes through celebrating with sacrifices to the Lord, celebrating the ark. And we have a picture of her as she's introduced looking down from a window. Not only does it say that she's being condescending in her approach, thinking that she's above David, but she's being distanced. She's distanced from all the celebrations of God's people as they participate in worship. Finally, we even see um, that we're, uh, her heart is revealed. It says that she despised David. That's an anger that's going to fester as it spills out in her sarcastic mocking that takes place later in verse 20. And then as sort of a last comment, the narrator concludes this whole section uh, with giving a final verdict on Michael in verse 23, that she remained childless through her days. 
That is, uh, in that particular time in Israel's history. Not at all times, but for that particular time in Israel's history in the Old Testament that stood as a, a typological symbol for people to say that she is under curse. She is not blessed. That is the way the narrator guides how we should frame Michael's comments here. As for David, the key verse to help us understand all that he is about is verse 20. And he reiterates it. Repetition is a key point in in Hebrew literature to know emphasis. And there it is, twice in this passage, he tells Michael that his actions were before the Lord. The implication is that he is living his life before the Lord and not before man. What does this mean? What does it mean to live before the Lord? It's not simply claiming to be more religious. I mean, there are a lot of hypocrites who will just use their so-called religious activities as a way to justify being a jerk to people. Oh, I'm sorry you were offended, but I was doing it for the Lord. No, his comments expose what Michael has been missing and what he has found. It's not just before God. It is before the Lord. That name, all caps, signifying the God who makes a covenant with his people. A God who relates to his people and not merely relating to them, but relating to them savingly. It is the lesson that David has learned. Remember the context of this whole passage in chapter 6 is that he learned that God in the, in the presence of the ark doesn't just stand for his holiness, but that ark represented everything about how God would redeem his people. It symbolized the promises that he would give to bless. How should we live before not just God, but how should we live our lives before a gracious God? How should that transform us? It transforms David's actions and his interactions with Michael. We'll see here in three different ways. It redefines our self-worth. It redefines our worship. And it redefines our generosity. Let's look at each of these in turn. First, how should it transform our self-worth? How should it transform our image of ourselves? Well, first, living before a gracious God will find our dignity and our worth in God's opinion of us more than others. You see, David and Michael present a sharp contrast that exposes a difference. The difference between a heart captured by the gospel and a one still searching still longing for some justification of who she is. And you might be thinking, well, I mean, okay, David, I mean, Michael might be wrong-headed about her criticisms. She might come from bad motives, but, I mean, doesn't she have a point? Doesn't her her criticisms still have a a grain of truth here? I mean, there's some hanky-panking going on, isn't there? I mean... Wouldn't any wife have a problem seeing her husband dancing, dancing with other women? And, I mean, what's going on with David? Is he naked here? Um, is, is he undressed? What does verse 20 mean when it says that he shamelessly uncovers himself? That sounds scandalous. 
Well, first, uh, we have to note that nothing in this text suggests that David was naked. Um, nothing in the text suggests that he's engaged in anything sexual. And we need to be careful with that accusation. David clearly had a problem with women. There are many other texts that show that he sinfully accumulated wives. And that he, in, in other instances, committed adultery. Now, he should not get a pass in any of those instances. But it seems here that, that My- Michael rather wants to, to hit David where it hurts. She is accusing him in an area of weakness. She takes a dig where he is vulnerable, dismantling his reputation. And someone who struggles with the opinions of others would know that this would be almost a mortal blow. We have to see here the way she sees. If we pay attention to the context, though, Michael's big issue with David is not about sex. It's about class. Her problem is that David has taken the dignity of the royal robes and has removed them from his person. We look at verses 13 and 15. They're there to illustrate this religious ceremony that is going on here. And King David is leading the procession of this sacred Ark of the Covenant into the holy city of Jerusalem, and he being the holy king. You start to get an idea of what that should look like, right? Many of you know that in May there will be a royal wedding in England that, uh, that Prince Harry is going to get married. I don't really get into all this stuff, but you know, some of you at least know what that picture looks like. Maybe you've seen his, his parents' wedding, Charles and Diana, and you knew what that looked like, right? The whole church filled out. It was, it was a picture of dignity and honor and respectability. It was elegant and majestic. It was everything you expect out of royalty. Imagine a king leading a religious ceremony like that image. Well, now look at verses 13 to 15. Try to picture the mess and the stench of animals being sacrificed and the king being right there in the midst of it. And the racket they made. Verse 15 says that there's a blast of a horn and people are shouting. And then the king himself starts dancing. And it's not just dancing. It is wild dancing. The word is unique in the Old Testament. It is uh, equivalent to uh, a whirling tempest that is going on. I think Christy might describe my dancing as a whirling tempest. Perhaps as mortified if I was to do that here as Michael was. She's sweating right now. I'm not going to do it. (laughs) But, you know, in in Michael's mind, can you imagine what this is saying about royalty? Can you imagine Queen Elizabeth cutting a rug like that? No. 
He is no longer wearing the royal garb. No longer is the crown on his head or the or the thick robe around his shoulders, no longer holding the, the regal scepter, as it were. That's the point about shamelessly uncovering himself and putting on a linen ephod. It wasn't sexual. The ephod was the priest's uniform, but a linen ephod was also the attire that slaves wore. And there's David, the king, mixing with the riffraff. That was the scandal. Michael's, Michael's wife knew it. It was an area of shame, and she wouldn't mind lobbing a, a few jabs at his sexual sins of the past in order to bring him down a peg. Michael, David's wife, knew how a king should act, and this was not it. She was the daughter of a king. More than that, she was the daughter of a king who knew how to act like a king. Saul, in fact, Maybe his greatest attribute is that he knew how to look the part. This all comes out in her speech in verse 17, a speech that's dripping with sarcasm. Oh, how the king himself, how the king has honored himself today, uncovering himself with slave girls like some vulgar fellow. Notice a couple of things about this speech. First, she stresses the words honor and shame. She cares deeply about them. It is his role as king that she is concerned about. Not his role as leader of the people of Israel. Not his role as as one who spiritually is supposed to guiding the people. It is the honor and the shame that she's, she's concerned about. How is this going to reflect on his image as king? How is this then in turn going to affect the reflected glory that I want to bask in as queen? But the second thing you notice about her speech is who she's making the speech to. This isn't a private conversation with David that she's having. She goes to the crowd because the opinion of the crowd is what matters to her and the sarcasm that she uses Well, it's mocking, but it's also to get them to laugh. She needs their opinion to bolster her sense of self-worth. She needs their approval. Oh, how easy it is to get sucked into this trap. How easy it is to be tempted, clinging to those things that give us significance, things that we take pride in, things that we if attacked, would feel shame. In fact, that we use to cover our shame. When it is our reputation, we'll do whatever it takes to protect it. When it's threatened, we will despise and attack the thing that we think is going to attack our uh, our cover. How many of us just need to make sure that people give us the proper credit? How many of us that need people to see the extra hours that we are putting in? It's no matter what the work is being done. We need people to see the reputation that we are trying to maintain and build. It is who we are. Some of us are so compulsive in our outward display, we use this as a way to signal to other people, yes, we have significance. 
which is why we ask many people, how are you doing? And they say, oh, I am so busy. I am so stressed out. Why? They want to signal to you, hey, I'm important, and the work I'm doing is vital. In fact, I can't take any time off. I can't even back up from my tasks, because you need to know that I am significant. Oh, we use this in that subtle fear that if, in fact, sometime we rest, we might become irrelevant. And for others, it's the significance of relationships. Love and acceptance brings worth to us and the fear of being rejected. Finding the fact that we will very subtly start plotting ways for people to, to be dependent on us. For people to need and, and to love our need. To love the need that they have from us. Until very subtly, people around us start getting suffocated and distancing themselves. You know, ironically, Michael the Queen is needing to derive honor and worth from her subjects. But David feels none of this shame. None of it, not because he's careless or aloof, but because he lives before a gracious God. His identity isn't feverishly trying to acquire and maintain his identity. Why? Because his identity was something given as a gift. It wasn't what he earned. That's what he says in verse 20. It was before the Lord who chose me. David knows his identity. He knows that on his own he was the runt. He was the one passed over. He was the one his father didn't even think of when they said one of his sons would be king. That's his identity that he could earn. And he's in touch with his sins. The Psalms show us that he knows his place, if it was on his own, would be cast away from the Lord's presence. He knows the identity he has is a gift from God, not based on anything that he has. When you find your identity and value in the opinions of others, you're always going to be insecure. You're always going to feel that impulse to put up a good front. Michael's use of sarcasm fits in with this picture. Sarcasm, if you use it, It's not sinful in itself, but it so often feeds that desire to both be protected and to attack. Because you can be confrontational, oh, but it's just a joke. And you can guard yourself from vulnerability. When we are insecure, we become defensive. It's striking that David doesn't react defensively here. He doesn't give excuses about his ephod or his dancing. He simply states that what he does is before the Lord and not others. He doesn't mind being associated with servants. He doesn't mind that he is looked at as a servant himself because that is what he sees his job. His number one job is to be a servant of the Lord, far above being the king over the Lord's people. A servant of the Lord is his role. And he takes pride in that because it was a gift given to him. And so he can lay aside his royal robes and he can take up the priestly robe. He can keep his eyes fixed on a gracious God as one who will prefigure one of his descendants who will lay down a much higher glory. 
In this way, he is representing Christ, though in the form of God, did not cling on to that divinity, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God highly exalted him to give him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, and every tongue confess that he is Lord. It is that servant, that humble servant, that allows us to find our identity in him alone. And that's the first point. Life before God, a gracious God, will find dignity and worth in God's opinion of us alone. But the secondly, and related to this, is that it will begin to transform our worship. Life before a gracious God cares more about how God receives our worship than about how man views it. Now, David clearly doesn't care at all about the criticisms of his, of his worship that Michael brings. And he doesn't care about his reputation as king or the respect he's getting from others. But that doesn't mean he doesn't care. David cares deeply about what he does before the Lord. He cares deeply about what God sees in his worship. He's learned his lesson. And it's an important lesson about worship. Remember, in chapter 6, he's rebuked by the Lord for offering worship on his terms. You see, at the beginning of that chapter, he took no care to how the ark would be brought in. It could come in a cart led by ox. It doesn't matter, even though God told him that wasn't the way. No, he's learned the lesson. We see here, verse 13, how does the ark come back in? Well, it says it's carried. They were taking steps. As, they, as the men carried the ark. He's changed his approach. It's a point worth repeating, that we cannot offer God anything we please just because we offer it sincerely. We cannot bring an offering in worship. We cannot come to God on our own terms just because we have a sincere heart. God instructs us. He puts elements in worship to guide us. He tells us how we are to approach him in worship. Not only should we avoid the things in worship that God forbids, like setting up of idols or things like that, but we should also only do those things that he commands us to do. Or as our confession says, we should only bring him those things that are good, that good, by good and necessary inference are derived from the scriptures. Why? Why does God regulate worship? It it isn't simply because God likes worship this way and not this way. Although if that was all, that would be enough. It's because when we drift from worshiping according to his way, and we begin to worship according to our own desires, what we wind up inevitably doing is distorting God and perverting his gospel we begin missing the very good news that he offers for us. You see, the elements of worship that he instructs us to include are intentional. Each element tells us something crucial about God and something crucial about the message of salvation. And so when we see in Scripture him instructing us to include in a service of worship, let's say, prayer, sacrament, confessing our sins, preaching and hearing of the word, giving of the offering, 
all of those things relate directly to the gospel and to the message of salvation. They're not arbitrary. Each of these express, indeed, they express the message of Christ. You see, and that brings us to a vital truth about anything we offer in worship, that we only offer it through Christ. You see, when we worship according to our own desires and our own ways, we're just bringing ourselves. But if we brought ourselves, we would be outside of Christ and indeed in danger of, of God punishing all of our sins throughout without the cross. We come through Christ, offering our worship in Him. When we ad-lib, we begin to distort the message. Think of it this way. Imagine if you love Shakespeare, and you wanted to see a Shakespeare play, and you bought tickets, and you, you go to the performance, and all of a sudden the characters decide, well, we're going to ad-lib this play, and we're going to start changing elements here and changing things there. Let's not have Hamlet die. Let's make this a really happy thing. All of a sudden, you realize the play you're not watching is not Shakespeare. It's these actors and the story they want to tell. Well, that's the point. Some of us need to understand that God gives us regulation to worship as goodness to us, to help us get more of Christ and less of ourselves. Now, some follow that principle and come to this passage to justify dancing as an element of worship. Here, David is dancing before the Lord. Shouldn't now we dance before the Lord? And to be clear, oftentimes they're arguing something about dancing that is different than just being reactive to the good news. To not different than hearing a song and swaying or dancing or being moved by it in some response. They're talking typically about a performance that's more like ballet, where you're getting a message from the dance. And we should take that, that seriously. If Scripture does indeed tell us that, then we should follow it, whether it's something that is embarrassing to us or not, depending on your cultural background. I mean, we do all sorts of things that are weird here. I mean, we say we're eating and drinking the flesh and blood of Christ. That's weird. There's a lot of things that are weird in what we do. And so that factor must not be what we gauge. It must be whether or not this is something commanded to us by God. That's the point. When our church adds an element here or there that goes beyond what God has instructed, we begin to craft and distort the message. We begin to bind your conscience because we take seriously what the church says worship should look like from God. How frightening it would be to begin to lead you in ways that we decided. How frightening it would be if, if we decided there would be more people that would come if we did this in worship or that in worship or that the, the message would be more impactful to you emotionally if we did it this way or that way. How scary that would be because it would be an abuse of power. It would be overstepping the role that we have not to, to give us our, the own, our own elements of what worship should be, but God's alone. 
But the thing about this passage is, David here isn't adding an element. He's not adding to the sacrifices or the blowing of the horn. No, what he's doing here is responding to joy. It's his response to the gospel. That's the whole point of this passage. It's before the Lord, not before the people. This isn't dancing to earn honor. It's a response to the honor that God has given him. It's pure, responsive joy. If we were to make it a command, if we were to say, this is how you should respond to joy, that would be tantamount to telling you how to have emotions. Sometimes I think we think Presbyterians do this. We think we regulate the worship to tell you how to respond to good news. Okay, this is how you should respond to good news. Perhaps give a reverent, hmm. Maybe if it's very moving to you, you could say, amen. Not too audible. You don't want to distract the person next to you. No, we can't regulate that. You're comfortable sometimes the fact that there's not clapping and dancing around here. If that is how you respond to the good news of the gospel, you need to do it. How backwards it is to make the forms into elements. No longer be responding to the blessing, but trying to procure blessing by acting a certain way in response. The life before a gracious God views worship through Christ and views it as a response to the honor that God has given us, not a means of acquiring it ourselves. Well, lastly and very shortly, the life before a gracious God will overflow with generosity, both to God and to others. I can't skip through this passage without pointing this out. It's so vital. With all going on with Michael, it is easy to overlook the extravagant and the abundant, joyful worship that we see illustrated here. It is beyond all that's expected. Verse 17, David offers this this offering to God, but then in verse 18, it spills over to the, the celebration and the blessing that he gives to the people. And then in 19, it just can't stay into a ceremony. It has to turn into a feast where there is breads and cakes and meats and raisins. I guess that's festive. I don't know. But notice what he's saying here, that it's among all the people. It doesn't leave anybody out, and it goes to pains to say that the whole multitude, men and women, each one has food. It is a celebration that's including all of them. That's the type of response that is a response to the gospel. It's generous worship. One that produces a generosity of heart. It's one that just echoes that that passage that we've read in Luke where this woman who doesn't give a fig about the Pharisee in that room, she only sees Jesus. She doesn't care about his judgments on her actions. She doesn't care that it's shameful to come down and wipe Jesus' feet with her hair. She doesn't care that, that she is spending thousands of dollars from a woman that may not have that much, thousands of dollars, what the Pharisee calls wasteful, on bringing that ointment onto Jesus. Why? Because she knows her sin. She knows the depth of it. 
just as David knows the depth of it, just as you know the depth of it. And the only response when you meet the Savior who has forgiven you is generous worship from a heart that overflows. The thought of being tight-fisted is absurd because you know that generosity enhances joy. It does. The guy who gets engaged to the girl of his dreams buys drinks for everybody. He's not calculating, okay, well, not the fancy drinks. That's just the regulars. No, the, the mom who gets her son home from, from war is going to throw a party. And not, if, you, if you tell her the expense, she's going to be insulted by it. No, they aren't there to earn honor. They're not afraid of wasting money because they know that the more generous they are, the more it will enhance the joy that they have from a heart set free. It's ones that are anxious and calculating about, okay, what is this going to mean for my future? That we start inhibiting our worship. Worshiping a gracious God calls for extravagant generosity. It calls for it spilling out to the whole community. It calls for a generosity that comes in in many forms of what we value. How much do we hold back because of other concerns, because of concerns of living before man? And how much does that generosity, the, the fear of being generous, actually diminish our joy? We shrink our hearts because we allow the fear to creep in. David has confronted a holy and gracious God. He brings the covenant ark into this city and he claims all the promises to it. And he must celebrate. I'll close with these words from Ed Welch's book, uh, When People Are Big and God is Small. Powerful book on struggling with the idols of those around us. He says, All experiences of the fear of man share at least one common feature. People are big. They have grown to idolatrous proportions in our lives. They control us. And since there is no room in our hearts to worship both God and people, whenever people are big, God is not. Therefore, the first task in escaping the snare of man is to know that God is awesome and glorious, not other people. David has seen this glorious, gracious God And he's chosen to live before him alone. Will you? Let's pray.